This week on Wealth Tracker, we in for a new world order of market leadership. Well, these are pro-cyclical economies. When you know when those when those currencies are appreciating, it draws more capital, more investment into those countries. That creates you know kind of a flywheel of positive you know effect that can sustain for several years. And that's one of the reasons you see these very long-term cycles of underperformance and outperformance. Michael Cass, Portfolio Manager of Barron Emerging Markets Fund, will make the case for this long underperforming asset class. This week on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investment Management, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. There's a saying on Wall Street that the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And there's a widely held financial theory called reversion to the mean, which asserts that eventually asset classes will return to their long-term average in terms of several factors, including price, price earnings multiples, and their performance relative to other asset classes like U.S. stocks. Reversion to the mean for emerging market stocks has been a long time coming. Well, this week's guest, Michael Cass, who runs Barron Emerging Markets Fund, believes their time has come. As illustrated by his chart comparing the benchmark emerging markets index to the S&P 500, emerging markets have lagged the U.S. market for the greater part of the last two decades and most definitively since 2014. Is that about to change? Are EM equities poised to outperform? Michael Cass is the portfolio manager of several funds at growth-oriented Barron Capital, but our focus today is the Barron Emerging Markets Fund, which he launched at the beginning of 2011. Ranked four-star overall by Morningstar with a bronze analyst rating, the fund has outperformed the competition in the diversified emerging markets category, as well as beaten the market since inception, including multiple periods in between. I asked Cass to explain why he believes emerging markets are poised to outperform now when they have failed to do so for well over a decade. In my opinion, we've gone through the Rubicon, where we've entered a new world, where basically, if for the last decade, you know, uh, nominal growth, inflation, uh, it was substandard and was stubbornly, you know, below expectations, we are now staring at a new situation where we're likely to exceed, we're going to err on the side of exceeding expectations. We're seeing that right now in terms of inflation measures, supply supply chain and, and, and supply disruptions. Uh, but you know, for emerging markets, that's, that's critically important because those economies and companies, corporate earnings tend to do much better in a period of you know, above trend global growth, uh, right. above trend inflation, uh, you know, expansive global trade. Obviously we've got some issues you know, with the US-China relationship, but you know, a lot of that global trade is, is going to be picked up by other countries. So this is not the death of globalization, but certainly between the U.S. and China, there's some ripple effects that are going to be, you know, those present maybe long-term opportunities. But the the point here is that you know we believe that we have we are reaching that point of escape velocity, which will benefit, be a tailwind for emerging markets when that capital starts to move back in, uh, when the dollar, you know, I would say in this environment, because it's the U.S. between you know. U.S. Congress and the kind of congressional spending programs and then support by the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve, you know, is taking the lead on sort of driving global stimulus, that would suggest we're entering a period of dollar weakness, you know, after a decade of strength in the dollar. Explain why dollar weakness is good for the emerging markets. If 
the dollar is depreciating, then those foreign currencies are appreciating. And so every dollar of interest you're earning on those sovereign bonds, you get to boost that. That's going to be increased by the amount of currency appreciation you, you, you receive. So if you moved your money out of dollars into Brazilian real or into Indian you know, rupee, you know, whatever your return is going to be higher if you're getting currency appreciation. And so that draws more capital. These are pro-cyclical economies. When, you know, when, those, when those currencies are appreciating, it draws more capital, more investment into those countries. That creates you know, kind of a flywheel of positive you know, effect that can sustain for several years. And that's one of the reasons you see these very long-term cycles of underperformance and outperformance. And we believe we are just at the very early stages. I would say we thought we were entering that as we were heading into 2020, disrupted right. by COVID. The COVID crisis and really the second round, the Delta variant, is really, in our, in our opinion, you know, creating a great opportunity for investors to take another look at EM right here. Uh, because you know this year, the, the Delta has disrupted things again. So you see that reversing? I'd say Delta had, had the impact of probably boosting the, the vaccination rates across the world as Delta emerged. And so that's happening in EM countries as well. And also, you know, something that spreads that rapidly, keep in mind, you know, when you think about the impact of COVID, uh, it's not just who's vaccinated, but who's already, you know, been exposed, who, who has, who, who's mm -hmm. carrying antibodies. So if those EM countries had a much worse, you know, impact at the, you know, going through the, the, the pandemic, coming out of it, much more of their population is carrying natural antibodies. And so that's another way we think about it. EM is in much better shape than the average investor would think. Those are good antibodies to be carrying in, in the population. So, so the herd immunity herd is at work. We're moving towards herd immunity and okay. you know, you're, you're seeing reopening. And, and, and I think markets are anticipating reopening. You know, so markets are always six months a year ahead of what's actually happening. They're always discounting the future. And so, you know, we can see in a country like India that was hit hard in the first half of the year for first quarter of the year uh, because of the emergence of Delta. That's one of the countries that would be considered, you know, have, have, have the greatest challenges uh, at, at, at managing the spread of that virus. Um, you know, now it's really leading all the emerging markets now, most of the emerging markets year to date, uh, you know, as we've kind of gotten over the hump of, of Delta and some of the kind of productivity enhancing reforms that they put in place are, are really kicking in now. So uh, India is really confounding the, the skeptics right now. Let's talk about China before we talk sure. further about India, because, uh, you know, China is what, 30 percent of the MSCI, the emerging market benchmark. Um, and certainly uh, it looms large for all sorts of reasons, the world's second largest economy, the impact that, number one, China's uh, economic slowdown could possibly have. And also we're seeing, you know, very aggressive moves by President Xi in the private sector, in the kind of the winning stocks that you've been invested in over the years um, in the sure. Chinese tech sector, like Alibaba and Tencent. So talk to us about what's going on in China yep. and the, uh, the impact that is having on other emerging markets as well. Clearly, you know, China at roughly a 30% weight in the EM index is kind of the elephant in the room when you're talking right. about the outlook or, or, or how people are, are looking at emerging markets. You know, I think what's important to say, you know, is that certainly um, there's a lot of concern around what's, uh, what's happening there with the kind of property uh, uh, deleveraging that's happening, mm -hmm. concerns around a potential, you know, credit issues there, et cetera, and obviously the regulatory and, and credit tightening that's been going on. But, you know, it's important to say that began in November of last year, I would say, it was the beginning of the tightening phase there. 
what we're seeing now, I would say, is the manifestation of, you know, uh, of, of, of Xi and the party's kind of desire to emphasize stability, to emphasize mm -hmm. uh, social, political, economic, financial stability in China. Uh, this is something that started probably 18 months ago, but we're only seeing it now because the implementation of some of these regulatory, you know, mandates that we're seeing, uh, the credit tightening that we're seeing, the implementation was delayed because of the COVID crisis. And so we would say that, uh, you know, um, when, when looking at China and looking at things such as the property uh, uh, deleveraging, Bubble. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the regulatory impact on the tech sector, Right, the interference in in publicly traded securities, the fact that the uh, ant ant IPO uh, was you know canceled at the last moment. I mean, there's definitely whatever the motivations might be from the Chinese government's point of view. Yes. Um, it it certainly is interfering in the private markets and in very large publicly traded companies that Westerners have been invested in because they have the largest market cap. So that's the reality. Um, so how do you view that reality, um, assuming it's going to continue from an investment point of view? In my opinion, the interference in the private sector is very targeted right now. Okay? It's targeted uh -huh. at certain companies or sectors that represent a potential threat to the political social stability, to you know, this, this, this phrase common prosperity that you're hearing a lot right now. So companies or agents or entities that are exacerbating the wealth gap, that are widening the wealth gap, are part of a problem, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so, this point of view. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there are many different ways that we, can, that, we, that we could look at that. But I think it's important to say, I am of the opinion, this is not an all-out war in the private sector, and it would be wrong to conclude that China has become uninvestable. You hear a lot of people go on you CNBC do. and other, other, other sort of financial media, you know, making that claim. You know, I think that they are missing the context. I think that what we're talking about is Xi needs to demonstrate that he is moving the country towards greater stability by cracking, by, by cracking down on, on certain agents that represent future risks. And so let me just tick those off. You look at polls in China at sort of what is the greatest source of social discomfort? Uh, what is the greatest risk to social stability? It is the high, one is the high cost of education and tutoring, say, that can be up to over 20% of per capita income. And that's with only one child. And keep in mind- And that was a sector that you were heavily invested in at one point. We were invested. I wouldn't say heavily, but yes. we were certainly were right. invested, yes. You were invested. And so that, from an investment point of view, suddenly the game rules have changed. So therefore you got out of that sector because of something that the government was doing. It wasn't- right you know, fundamentals about what was happening in the industry, or it was really government interference that caused you to get Absolutely. out of that sector. We, we knew right? early this year, we knew early this year that that was one of the right. industries on a short list that represent issues relative to stability or common prosperity. So the areas that are, you know, represent a, a, a potential risk to stability are the cost of education, the cost of housing, hence kind of a crackdown on the property developers does a couple of things. It both, you know, sends a message of discipline that, you know, this is for real, uh, that, you know, large developers that have been growing wildly and, 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 and piling up, racking up enormous amounts of, of, of debt and leverage to do that, they've been warned. And, and, and this time, you know, you're seeing, you know, loss of equity value and bondholder sort of losses in the, in, in the Evergrande. Well, we will see that in the Evergrande restructuring. 
other property developers being forced into restructuring. That really hasn't happened anywhere near this kind of scale right now. That's part of moving towards demonstrating better stability. It also has the you know, derivative impact of putting downward pressure on housing prices across China. Uh, and putting at, and, at a and, cost, I might add, to a lot of consumers because their biggest savings vehicle in China has been their housing investments. Yes, that's true. But the largest investors, the largest investors are the, you know, are the wealthy investor class in China. So I just want to know, gee, when I invest in China, am I going to know what the rules of the game are? Are they, are they going to be shareholder friendly and are the companies that I'm investing in not because they're involved with the government, but because of what their businesses are 100%. and how they're being run? So how, do you, uh, how are you investing right. in China? One of your themes right. is China value added. So tell us how you are avoiding what we're seeing as the interference in certain sectors which have really destroyed shareholder value and where there are opportunities. What does matter to you an investor, as an investor is, number one, to recognize that this is not an all-out assault on the private sector or on capitalism in China, that, that, the, that the government recognizes and understands that long-term they must have a functioning private sector. That is going to be the driver of job creation, of innovation, of productivity gains. Okay, but we also, as investors, we have to recognize there are companies that are part of a problem and there are companies that represent a part of the solution or solve the problems. So that's really the divide that we're focused on, okay? We have been reducing, eliminating those investments in companies as we understand. And I would say it's also, this also highlights the importance of really kind of having an active management approach when approaching China. And by the way, there are some fabulous, great companies that are going to continue, they're going to survive. You know, the, the big digital titans of China that are under some pressure, that, that are coming under regulatory mandates are going to have to evolve and change. They're not going away. But there's so going to be Tencent and Alibaba. Among those your those sorts of companies, and we, and we and we own some of, of those. And I would I would say today that the that the market has probably overreacted to some of these, out of uncertainty. Not that, that those things happen. We understand that, but I would say that they will be there will be some form of that their growth potential and their profit margin potential, will now be capped in a way that was not true looking back ten or fifteen years. So that makes them less interesting when you're taking a multi-year, 5, 10, 15-year view looking forward. On the other hand, there's a whole other set of companies, which we group broadly under a theme that we call China Value Added. These are the companies that can advance China's desire to become self-sufficient in the key value-added intellectual capital-driven industries, okay, where most of Such the world's value creation resides. Okay, so these are semiconductors. Artificial intelligence, semiconductors. Yeah, artificial right. intelligence, software, uh, SaaS software electronic vehicles and electrification and the electronic vehicle supply chain, uh, automation and robotics, biotech and, and pharmaceutical. I mean, these are sort of research-driven, intellectual capital-driven industries. This is where the world's value creation resides. China has been, you know, well below, punching below weight in all of those places for the last 20 years while they, you know, came to, in some ways, you know, dominate low-end, capital-intensive, you know, Industries right. and sectors that, you know, frankly, the U.S. has had little interest in for a long time. Now they are setting their sights. They're pivoting. There's a vector change. Give me a, a couple of examples of some of the opportunities there in sure. Chinese companies that are in these much more advanced technologies. There are a host of them. But I want to start by saying the vast majority are really not accessible to, you know, U.S. retail investors. They, they are not listed. They're not Chinese listed ADRs. These are companies that mostly trade only in mainland China through the A-share market. 
Uh, right. We can invest in that. You know, we have institutional kind of really, we, uh, access to, to those companies. Uh, and, and some of them trade, you know, in the uh, Hong Kong market, but very few of them, you know, so if viewers will, will have very little recognition of, these, uh, of who these companies are. You know, there's one I could right. mention. There's one I could mention that is a, an ADR listed company that kind of fits this nicely. It's called ACM Research. ACM Research is one of the few companies that is really a, it's a kind of a Sino-U.S. company because the founders, management are, 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 are Chinese, but it's a U.S. Uh, domiciled company. So it's kind of a rare, strange duck. But it is the only kind of, one of the few Chinese companies that really has, has reached global competitiveness, kind of global quality. They are a semiconductor uh, equipment company. They're focused on sort of, uh, cleaning of wafers in a, you know, that, that, that basically they allow you to purify whatever the impurities are in the manufacturing process so, so that manufacturers can really drive up the yield uh, of whatever kind of semiconductor content they're manufacturing. But, you know, what's, what's exciting about it is that um, they have a dominant share within the Chinese, you know, manufacturing uh, base, semiconductor manufacturing base. And if you think about it, you know, China moving to self-sufficiency means today, China manufactures 5% of uh, the world's semiconductor content, but they consume roughly 30%. China has, you know, their own homegrown companies that are moving as rapidly as they can. And anywhere that those Chinese companies can substitute local Chinese content for multinational, whether it's semiconductor equipment, uh, you know, or, or other parts of that, of that chain, they, they will move to do so. This is also true in software. It's, it's true in, in all those other markets I talked about. Right. Up to 30% of your portfolio now is in Chinese holdings. Do you envision with the opportunities that you're seeing there now that it will be around the 30% level in your portfolio? Well, I would say this. You know, we have always been, China being the largest anchor in emerging market, you know, in right. the emerging market index. Uh, it's the, it's the kind of the, the anchor country. Uh, it is the largest weight. You know, we have been, you know, in the range of kind of market weight plus, market weight minus. There's times where we might be 5% over or under whatever the index weight is. We have done a, 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 a kind of a very, you know, solid job of identifying companies that can really outperform uh, right. within China, regardless of the environment in China. If I'm looking at countries, your next largest representation is in Indian companies. And that is a, a market that you are enthused about, right? Wh wh why India? And give us an example of, of, a, of a, an Indian company that you think has particular potential. India is, is by far our largest, if you think, oh, when we talk about overweight positions. You know, our exposure to India is just about today nearly the same size as China, but its weight within the index is maybe a third of, uh, of China's weight. So. If you think this is really kind of our big bet uh, at the Barron Emerging Markets Fund, has been for some time. You know, India is fascinating. It's the most exciting. We think, uh, you know, when we go back to, uh, we are attracted to countries where we see reform initiatives, productivity enhancing reforms. You know, most investors like to think that the reason we want to invest in emerging markets is because it's got kind of a growth premium. You know, our view is that it's really about the potential unlock of huge efficiency and productivity gains if these countries could only be managed, you know, at, from a macro perspective and bottom-up perspective better. You know, we like to say that 
uh, emerging markets trade on post-corruption earnings, if you will. And so imagine how much better the earnings could be, how much more the value will flow to bottom to, to shareholders and investors if more of that value was not kind of falling out the sides and, and, and actually stayed within the company and was delivered to the rightful owners. Okay, so India has gone through a series of very, you know, kind of difficult but reforms. But the Modi administration, now, now you know, seven years on and in, 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 in into the second, uh, the second term, you know, has, has, is, gets the highest marks in the EM universe and probably in the world for engaging in kind of difficult uh, implementation of productivity enhancing reforms that are not always popular, but are setting that country, you know, up for years of, of, of kind of a, uh, the dividend and the return on the heavy lifting that they've already put in. So we're seeing that now, uh, GST tax reform, um, uh, reforms in the real estate sector, bankruptcy reform, uh, demonetization, you know, these are all kind of reforms that they've engaged in that kind of, they went through a series of challenging, even kind of liquidity crises as they went one by one through these things. We're now out on the other side of that. So what that's meaning is, you know, inefficient companies that were kind of operating in the black market economy, not reporting their income, not reporting taxes, operating in cash, you know, those days are essentially over in, in India. And so only the most efficient companies get access to capital. Only the best entrepreneurs, you know, are taking over markets. And I would also say we're at the, really, if you think about all the opportunity in the tech sector that we've seen in digitization in China in the last 15 years, you know, India is in the early, early innings of that. And so we see remarkably fascinating companies that are coming public and some that are kind of late stage private and, and, and nearing going public. Give us an example of one that you're excited about that is public. There's a company called Reliance. They have a division called Reliance Joe. I have to mention it because they are the entity that makes digitization possible in India. They opened up and unlocked this opportunity for really the entire country and for all these other companies that are coming in behind them that have applications or other vertical opportunities. But Reliance Joe is the company that you know invested enormously uh, and took a big risk at deploying broadband and made broadband uh, service uh, smartphones available for you know a billion you know customers. I, that is an enormous change and opens up incredible opportunities for 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 scores of companies to develop businesses that we've seen you know emerge in the U.S. or China or really broadly globally. India was lagging behind the rest of the world. They're now catching up. Reliance is a is is a large cap company that gets credit. Uh, then there are many smaller companies that we've invested in that are kind of uh, more you know focusing on particular verticals, whether that's in the financial technology, educational technology, uh, you know, um, various, uh, you know, all the different internet business models right. that, that we see around the world. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, and, and I know that, you know, you, we've asked you basically to give one that is accessible to U.S. retail investors, so what would it be which eliminates a lot of the companies that you're investing in it? Always hard to pick one. One area I have not talked about at all, I mean, we talk a lot about growth, digitization, the appeal of some of these big themes, value added in, 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 in China. Sustainability or decarbonization is another big chunk, another big theme within our portfolio that's really transcends borders. It's really a global phenomenon, and we've got many investments in, in, in those areas. I will pick out a company that I think is really misunderstood uh, that does trade as an ADR. There's a company we own called Suzano in Brazil. It's the world's largest and lowest cost pulp manufacturer. And you kind of say, well, what's interesting about that? Isn't, you know, pulp is kind of a commodity business. That is true. However, you know, what we think, you know, most investors really are, are, are in the market is really missing is that 
You know, this company is, is, is investing enormously in technologies and creating joint ventures with partners to, you know, to, to position themselves to, to play a key role in the substitution of plastics and petrochemicals by fiber-based goods in consumer packaging, food service markets. So oh, interesting. It, th mm -hmm. this company, more than any other, is at the forefront of figuring out how to, how to unlock that, 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 that change and how to contribute to decarbonization. Uh, they, and, and, and so obviously it's good for them because a pulp manufacturer is, is, the, is the basic raw material that's gonna go into fiber-based alternatives. But they're doing the R&D and they're partnering with big consumer companies to come up with products that they can jointly, uh, uh, that they can jointly you know, bring to market. Um, and so we think that's a company that is really misunderstood. It's viewed as kind of a commodity pulp manufacturer you know, it's really a gateway towards decarbonization in the long term. Great. Michael Cass, thanks so much for joining us on sure. Wealth Track. Thank you. Been a pleasure. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point follows the investment advice of recent Wealth Track guest David Gardner of The Motley Fool. And it is particularly relevant when considering investing in volatile emerging markets. It is know your sleep number as an investor. Now for Gardner, it means what number would you allow a single stock to get at the maximum as a percentage of your overall portfolio and still be able to sleep at night? In the emerging markets case, I would change it a bit and ask what is the minimum you would allow them to represent in your portfolio? Michael Cass made his case for investing in emerging markets for the next decade. In order to be truly diversified, they should be part of a long-term portfolio. The question is, what is your minimum emerging market sleep number and take it from there? Well, next week, we welcome back veteran strategist and manager Bob Dahl to discuss his focus on values and faith-based investing at his new firm, Crossmark. In this week's extra feature, Michael Cass discusses why he and Barron Capital recently launched a new fund focused on Asia. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for joining us today. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.